Canine Detection Collaborative, a detection dog training trio with Stacy Barnett. Hi. Robin Grubel. Hey there. And Crystal Wing. What's up? With humor and a big dose of theory, our trio talks practical training advice and features interviews with top trainers and scientists. It's Canine Detection Collaborative! Hey everybody, it's Stacey Barnett from Canine Detection Collaborative, and I'm here with one of my glorious co-hosts, Robin Grubel. Hello. And we still have Crystal Wayne. She can't talk at She's all. nonverbal at this She's point. Completely non- yeah, she really is. She's typing to us, but... Yes. We, yeah, we're trying to give her vocal cords a chance to recover and everything, so... We're giving her a little bit of a break. And so we're going to continue. So last week, last week, we we answered all kinds of great questions. And we still have a whole bunch more. So we figured we'd do a second episode um, answering your questions and everything. So I'm really glad we're doing this. This is a lot of fun, too. because it, it is, because like, it's it keeps us on our toes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So we're just going to just going to kind of keep going and, and get these and answer all your questions. So do we want to start on the, the next one? Or do you, do you have, I know you're, doing the highlighting thing like you're, right. you're well working. why don't we go this one how often if at all do you set time learn limits during training sessions it depends on what i'm doing yes that's yeah. my answer goal. too. yeah what's, what's the goal of your training and the dog and so sometimes i tell people they need to time themselves and part of it is is because i think sometimes handlers really don't necessarily have a sense of urgency and maybe they're getting close to being trial ready. And so the dog has the skills, but the handler doesn't necessarily pay attention to the search area with respect to how much time that they have. So sometimes I'll ask them to time themselves there, or I like them to be able to kind of see how long can they challenge themselves to clear an area that we know is devoid of odor in a certain amount of time, things like that. But if I want to let the dog do some problem solving, I'm not really going to put a timer on it, but I am going to pay attention to the dog's motivation. And if I start to see that start to flag, then I know I need to make adjustments. Right. And I think time limits during a training session may be a little bit differently because I do a lot of work that's not odor work. Right. Right. And I know, Stacy, you've been doing all of the stuff mm-hmm. with platters and stays and yeah, yeah, and all sorts yeah. of stuff. And so the question then becomes, how much can I get done in two minutes? Yeah. Right? Yeah. How much healing can I get done? How many times can I get my puppy to offer a sit at a cap or a sit on a verbal cue within two minutes? Yeah. And... I would like to challenge people more often because we get into this whole mm, just one more. concept of just one more. Don't train till it's ugly. <laughs> yeah, people, exactly. Stop training till it's ugly. Yeah. The other thing is to think about the fact that we often tend to go with, oh my God, I have time to train. So I'm going to spend the next half an hour training my dog. Yeah. And really you lost the dog at about three minutes in and the rest of it turns into a highly, you get highly frustrated and you would have been better off to train for three minutes, put a timer on yourself. So you have a sense of urgency, put the dog up for 10 minutes, get the dog out and do another three minute session. 
put the dog up, get the dog out and do another three minute session. Yeah. That you'd be better served doing that than doing a whole entire big, long 30 minute training session. And so, I mean, I remember when I was doing chicken workshops, one of the first things that Harveen and Bob had us do was here's your timer. You get two minutes or you get 30 seconds. How many repetitions can you get in in 30 seconds? And it, it makes you become very conscious about time. So, yeah. And we did an episode about time. We did, didn't we? Yes. And so I would. We've done like 90. I know. Seven, it's really scary. Episodes. Yeah. So yeah. It's a lot. If you need to look through episodes and kind of see what we might have done, we do have a website because sometimes that's easier to, might be easier for you to scroll through than like your podcast app or something. So that's out there. But we'll link to the time episode. Yeah, and that, that website is caninedetectioncollaborative.com if you're right. If you're, if you're yes, if you haven't. Okay. Yeah. The other thing is like with the time is that if you are training, sometimes I'll do a longer training session, but it doesn't mean I'm doing the same thing all the time. So I'll work on one thing for a short period of time and pay attention to my dog. And then I change the subject and, and maybe I'll go play or I do something that just kind of lets them have a little bit of a brain break. And then I'll come back and I'll do some of the same stuff. But you, but as far as it, it's kind of like a duration thing, like doing the anything repetitive, you're just bound to, it's going to get worse if you yeah. work too long. Well, and puppies are 30 seconds training sessions. Yeah, yeah, puppies right? are. I'm talking for dogs. Well, but, and then, but then you build into, now we can do a three to five to 10 minute training session. Exactly. But that's a muscle that we build exactly. up. Exactly. And I'm with you. If I'm going to work on something, unless, and I've done this both ways. It's a very targeted training. I'm out here for two minutes. We're working on holds because I need to drive this whole concept home. We're going to work on holds. When you do a perfect one, we're going to play a lot and be done. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then you flip over to, okay, now we can work on hold and a heal separately, but in the train, same training session or yes. something yes. of that nature or a downstay. And then we go into healing or stuff like that. But yeah. that might get me a seven to 10 minute training session on a much more experienced dog. Yeah. An older dog. So absolutely. Okay. So here's one about search and rescue dogs. So mm -hmm. she lives in an area with no validated our SAR dog teams, our tested SAR dog teams. There are lots of places like that. So she's in Canada and could in theory validate stuff with the RCMP civilian standards, but looking for progression plans and networks. So my suggestion for progression plans on anything is the Scandinavian Working Dog Institute's website, or they have an app. So they have fantastic progression plans on things, on how to teach very specific behaviors. You, you do personal coaching, don't, don't you? I do personal coaching, absolutely. And I have clients all over the world that I do personal coaching with. I have options that way. 
And so maybe I could tell you, reach out and let me help you find something. And Canada is a really, really big place. (laughs) (laughs) Unless I know a little bit where you're at, (laughs) I could recommend somebody for you, but they might be like all all across the continent and not very helpful. So reach out to me and we will figure something out. So does that just kind of brings up, I know Stacy and I both offer private coaching to people. Yeah, yeah. And Stacy's got a wonderful coaching community that she has. I haven't gotten that far yet. I do. I do have a great coaching community. So um, there's, you guys all have phone a friend. Yes. Or phone a mentor type of thing. So, okay. Here's one. Example of a progression plan for training manners obedience along with dog sports, scent work and tracking. Oh my. Um, well, example of a progression plan. There's a lot of resources, right? And we mentioned a bunch of them already. Between Crystal's fundamental, I think that's a great place to start, honestly. I would start with her obedience fundamentals. I mean, it's just really that. I think would cover probably cover a portion a of that. Yes. And yeah, and, it, and it's also going to depend on, you know, what types of dog sports you're doing in terms of what or what kind of activities and what kind of obedience they need to have. Right. I think that's a great place to start. You you really can't go wrong with that. I mean, and it's all there's it's all progression based. I mean, she teaches like these foundational behaviors that kind of build into everything. I would do that one. You know, when People, we talk a lot about progression plans, right? In my definition of a progression plan is I have this side of the bank, which is where I am. And I'm looking across a river to the other bank, which is the behavior that I want. Right. And I actually have to build a bridge to get over there to teach the dog the behavior. Yeah. And in that bridge, I have those big checkoffs that I have to do that are like every sixth or seventh board. Those are the big chunks. Yeah. I still have to put and build all of these little tiny progression plans in between. So when you start thinking about progression plans, are you thinking about progression plan on how do you teach, train, and then test a behavior? Or are you talking about in which fundamental blocks or behaviors am I putting together in order to teach all of this stuff? Because the the what versus the how. Right. Right. Yes. And so if I'm thinking about, you know, what behavior should I be teaching my dog as foundations for scent work and tracking or trailing, you got to start with a reinforcement system. Yeah. Right. The ability to use your nose. Yeah. And some of those, those are actually foundation behaviors. And being able to focus in a novel environment like that, engagement, general engagement. Yes. And that's where something like Crystal's class is absolutely fantastic. And she builds in all of this other stuff that goes along with it that is phenomenal for any dog. Things like crate training, riding in your car, crate is huge. Yes. There's so many things that really have nothing to do with the searching that you need to have. Being able to wait is actually kind of big because if you do nose work, right, you're going to have these staging areas where you have to wait. And you don't want the dog to like either if they're high arousal, burn up their all their their 
brain cells right before they, they get to the start line. Or you don't want to have the have the dog, you know, you've got to get the dog in the right arousal. There's a whole lot that has to go into that as well. So right. Yeah. Wearing harness, that can be big for dogs too. Right. I, and how do you load in? Will the dog load into a harness and not think that it's a correction when they hit yeah. the end of a harness to when they're on track? Yeah. So some of it is we tend to lump all sorts of things. So if you're looking at no. progression, I know <laughs> we don't lump anything. Never. No. And kidding. so the question is to look at what behavior you're wanting out of your dog and start dissecting all of those behaviors that go behind it to support it? And how can you make sure that you're actually teaching your dogs how to do them the way that you want them to do them so that they're not coming up with other things? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Next one's you. I'll read it for you. Okay, good. Because I'm not sure where we are. Okay. My dog has his UKC and closing UKCEN. I don't know what that is, but that's okay. Okay. I think that is I don't I don't know the UKC titles. That's okay. So an entry novice? I don't know. And closing in on a champion title. Oh, it must be an upper uh, elite something 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 something, okay. something for UKC. Yep, 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 yep. They can't get a single cue in AKC advanced interiors. Okay. How should we or should we train differently for the two organizations? Okay. Oh, okay. So so it's the UKC versus AKC. AKC. Okay, so AKC, and again, I don't know what EN stands for, but I think that is fairly upper level in UKC. I don't have a lot of experience at all with UKC. I just want to kind of put that out there. But the AKC interior, so then we're talking two hides in AKC and interior. And if you're struggling with that, I think it is possible. I know there is a an odor strength issue between UKC and AKC. That could be part of the issue. But as far as like training differently for the two organizations, I think I wouldn't necessarily think of it as training differently. I try to take a look at your advanced interior and see what are you struggling with? I tend to not train for organizations. I'm going to be completely transparent. Transparent there. I don't train for organizations. I train for good searching. And then I take a dog that searches really well and I bring them out and I trial them and and they, you know, and then they do well. But I'm not training for a level. I don't train for levels. I don't train for organizations. I just train for searching. And what I would say is that if you're struggling with especially a certain class like advanced interior, where you have two hides, try to figure out what is your dog struggling with? Is your dog struggling with trapping odor? Or odor pools. In that case, which I'm going to kind of guess like that might be a piece of it because of the strength of the AKC odor, that gives you an indication of maybe that's where you may want to start and start to work with, you know, start building some of that capability with the odor pools. So I think it comes down to just understanding what specific thing the dog's actually struggling with rather than thinking about it from a an organization or a level. So you're talking about going back, what skill is, is it trapping yeah. odor? Is it? And so I just looked it up. So it's elite nose work, which okay. is, I think okay. the highest level nose work in the UKC world. Okay. Got it. Thank and you. so, yeah, I'm not familiar with all of them either. Yeah. And I know they have a lot of, they have five, five odors yes. um, in yep. UKC that there's two of them. My, my dogs are not on because I, I don't really do UKC. 
just don't have enough time. Right. But I know they're, I, I don't know if they're doing unknown number of highs or not at the elite level in UKC. It seems to have, I think it's come back and forth, but you could have a big difference in how the searches are set up. I mean, I would look at that. I'd look at that, see if that's part of the issue and look at odor strength and maybe even the types of high placement. I mean, you may be finding that your the type of high placement that your dog sees in AKC is different than UKC. I would definitely look at those things. Right. And look at the skills. What skills is your dog having struggling with and go there. Yeah. Okay. Next question. How do I handle a dog's arousal level during a trial? My dog, Stacey, I figure you might be a good one for this one. Yeah, I'm like sitting here going, I, feel, I hashtag attacked here. <laughs> My dog just keeps ramping up throughout the day and it's much less effective at later searches as a result. And it's probably tired. Yeah, I think the exhaustion plays into that. This is where handling a dog's arousal level, I think you have to also, and you know, I think we, both of us need to talk about this, Robin, because this is this whole arousal drive question, yes. right? And so for instance, I do have a very, one of my dogs is very high arousal that I trial, which is powder. And her drive is also very, very high. But I find as the day goes on, she actually gets better because now she's starting to settle in just a little bit. And I feel like the edge is off of her. And now I have more access to her drive. But if you've got a dog that the arousal level, if the arousal is going up and up and up, that means something's happening to cause that arousal level to go up. And I would be looking at what is that that's happening? Is it the anticipation? Are you adding to the arousal the way that you bring the dog to the start line? Are you adding to the arousal the way that you set up? Are you, is there something that's adding to that? Is the dog stressed? Is stress causing the arousal to go up? Is it stress? Is it excitement? I would be looking at what you're doing currently and whether or not it's helping or hindering and what the causes of the arousal are. If it's just plain old, the dog's got a lot of energy or is it actually stress um, and the dog is stressing up? Because how you handle that is going to be different depending upon the source of the arousal. Right. Well, and so we had another question that actually kind of folds into this on finding or figuring out optimum arousal levels in your dog. Yep. And Crystal pipes in, you guys can't hear her because she's texting and she's like, well, you teach this outside of odor. Yes. And, or teach your dog to think at a higher arousal level. And that is absolutely something I would encourage people to do is put your dog in high arousal and do obedience. Yeah. I know Crystal and I spent a long time talking about arousal mobility in dogs. Mm-hmm. and how getting your dog to think. Yeah. And a lot of the reasons dogs can't out when you're, after you've been playing tug with them really hard, especially if they have a lot of possession, is because they can't hear you. Yeah. Right? Because yeah. that you haven't taught them how to think at that high level of an arousal point. And so... You do that through obedience. You do it outside of odor. And for the person who asked the question about your dog ramping up, I know, Stacy, you modify 
how you work with each, each individual dog as you go through all of the stage gating processes as you go through the day. Every dog is different. Every dog's different. And what they need is going to be different. And Crystal brings up a really great point here that some dogs actually, the process of like tugging, and I, I've seen this and I've worked with a lot of my students on this as well, where you have some dogs that biting a toy and doing quiet tugging can actually bring the arousal down. But if you do that with some dogs, it's going to ramp them up. So it's knowing what is going to be a little bit of an outlet for your dog. I think for the dogs that do like that, that quiet tugging, it's actually that that biting is a little bit of an outlet, the bite, biting on a toy that helps them to relieve and soothe a little bit of that arousal and it helps them to focus versus with some dogs that would kind of kind of make it go go up. So I think you need to know your dog. Know and this is why. But right, this is this is why going back to the, some of the questions from last week where we were talking about, you know, what do you do with your puppy? This is why your foundations are so important because you're actually instilling some of that all of that knowledge on how to play what brings the puppy up, what brings the puppy down. All of that is what you're figuring out before you even put them on odor work. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So Crystal's adding in here and she's saying like, I mentioned like some quiet tugging, but that's for the, some of the dogs I've worked with, but with her dogs, she's saying sometimes they need a lot more than that. And that's, those are her dogs. And it's just, she's saying that she used to take Quinn on a two mile jog and before tracking. So it really is knowing your dog and spending all that time to understand what brings your dog's arousal up and down. And then also, you know, what is the source of the arousal? Stress is if your dog is is stressed and is stressing up because if i see the words ramping up that tells me it's probably stressing up it's probably not ramping up it's probably stressing up so addressing stress in your dog might actually help the arousal so maybe it's not arousal management so maybe so much like helping the dog cope a little bit more help and crystal's little class teaches backpack i will tell you well i think this was more for me than it was for nico but Sitting in an airport and being able to put Nico behind my legs and basically yeah. him understand that when you, we are sitting in this position, you are off yeah, and you don't have to worry about anything. And he actually relaxed and went to sleep in the airport. And I also know that if wow. I'm sitting, I know, right? I'm sitting <laughs> at the awesome. airport and somebody comes walking at my dog and he is sitting behind my legs. I'm 5'11". My foot can reach out a long way and stop you <laughs> from getting close to my dog. I can plant yeah. a foot in your chest if I need to. Right, right. And so some of that is teaching them that sometimes it's okay to sit and do nothing. Yeah. I, I was doing some of that today, actually. I was doing some of that today. I'm sitting and doing nothing. And for the quick check. I'm sitting here talking on a podcast. The 13-year-old is dog. I think she's like, no, I'm just napping. We're just, cause you're doing that yakky thing again. Oh, I, I have a powder as a, as a uh, lumbar support. Oh, there you go. On my chair. Okay. So another one, I right. love to hear about strategies for the low arousal dog. Low arousal dog. Like, do we mean low arousal or do we mean low drive? Cause that's, those are two different things. Those are two different things. And I don't know. We, she is not here for us to ask her that question. Right. So, so I think we should talk about both. Oh, I totally agree. Yep. Low arousal dogs. Mm -hmm. Oh, I have one. 
Yeah. Some of that's through training. Some (laughs) of that's just her. Yeah. That's one of those things that you have to become for low arousal dogs. You really have to see if you can find the thing that pulls up the arousal a little bit. Yeah. And, you know, do you have low arousal, high, medium drive, or do you have low arousal, low drive? Right. And if you have low arousal, low drive, that's That's one of, that's hard. That's hard. And you end up doing a lot of stuff based on relationship with that dog. Yeah. And the last thing you want to do is add a lot of excitement to those dogs because they can't handle that much more, that additional arousal. Cheer squad. Yeah. They can't handle the additional arousal and all sorts of things that goes with, along with what we would consider whooping it up for a medium or high arousal dog to get them to push through on something. Yeah. Because that additional arousal would actually just be overwhelming for them. And that can cause other issues. It actually can cause the dog, like a low drive dog to shut down. Yes. So Crystal says define arousal and drive. Oh boy. How much time do we have for I was going to say, we don't have enough time in this episode. And we're so (laughs) going to wait for you to get your voice back. Because one of the things I was going to say, we may have to do another episode when Crystal gets her voice back so she can comment on all of the questions. Yeah, and all the other like I don't I don't agree I don't agree on it. Well, it's just, she's like I need my voice. I know, I know. And so arousal and drive that is one of those things that it is really interesting for us to start thinking about our dogs in those different terms cuz and so I'll use flash as an example. Flash is yeah. in my world what I would consider medium high medium to high drive dog. Mm-hmm. I mean, she'll do 400 yard marks. She'll do all, she'll run across a rubble pile for a toy. She'll do all sorts of things. She is not high arousal. Right. Meaning if she wants something and some of this is training, some of this is her, she has learned if I sit and I wait long enough, you will give it to me. Oh. And she doesn't get overly excited about much. That's great in a lot of ways and it can be frustrating in others. Yeah, it's so it makes, okay, let's get my dog to bark when we spend a lot of time getting a dog to, we do it through frustration. Right. When she's like, no, I'll just stand here and wait or I'll just sit and wait. Yeah. Now I'm, I'm working on mimicry and she's a year old, so eventually she'll bark. Yeah. It'll come. Oh, mimicry. That's an idea. Yeah. So that's what we do right now with the dogs. The old dogs get to bark and get lots of treats and she stands yeah. there and looks offended because she's not getting cookies. Yeah. But I, wa- I wonder, there, there is like actually a way of teaching the dog the how to mimic the human. Yeah. It's some wild, fascinating stuff. I've seen some videos. I'm like, oh my okay. gosh. Anyway, tangent. Crystal came from the top rope. And said, arousal is energy, drive is motivation. I agree partly. And <laughs> and actually, <laughs> if you think about what they're teaching in a lot of schools right now, they don't use the word drive. They use motivators. Yeah. What's motivating the dog. Yeah. And which somewhat also gets into the predatory action sequence and all of those sorts of things. 
And arousal is the dog's ability to handle, I think, some of its frustration and, and the excitability in its world. Yeah. I actually parse out drive and motivation because for me, motivation, you can add motivation to any dog regardless of the drive level. So I see drive as kind of more the, the internal motivation, the natural motivation that the dog comes genetically mapped with. But I kind of parse out the word motivation because I can add, she's saying that's what she meant. Okay. You didn't say it, Crystal. You didn't say it. You just typed out three (laughs) words. So I get to say it because I have a voice. Ouch. Neener, neener. (laughs) She's going (laughs) to. Yeah, you suck. Crystal writes, you suck. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So when I think about motivation, it's like I tell people, like, because I hear all, all people drive building, drive building. I'm like, no, you can't drive build. You can motivation build. Yes. You can't drive build. Because either they have it or they don't. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. And so let's get back to strategies for low, let's say low arousal dogs. My strategy for low arousal dogs is you have to be more imaginative in your training to get them to sometimes understand the behaviors that you want, right? Mm -hmm. You also might, for a low, to bring up arousal, one of the things that I've seen done is we get very, set in our ways on how to do reinforcement. And I have seen dogs that are low arousal respond better to intense whispering than a full blown cheer squad. Yeah. Yes. Cause yeah, the, the cheer squad could actually overwhelm the dog at that point. Cause that would be an uncomfortable level of arousal for them. I would think. So that would be my suggestion on for low arousal dogs now low low drive motivation dogs motivation yeah you've got to build motivation but you have to figure out what actually motivates them right and that you may need to get creative right i had a low drive poodle standard poodle i miss him and he would did not have appreciable toy or food drive and getting him to do nose work was interesting right but he did it. He, he ended up with an NW3 title. But I found out that he would take the piece of chicken at the hide. And it was just more of just a communication of this was correct. It wasn't actually a reinforcer. Because I think we need to get away from the words reward because we need to think about reinforcement. Because what reinforced Joey was actually playing with him just with my hands and being all goofy with him. That was reinforcing. But he ate the chicken at the, at the hide and that was just more of just like, this is correct. Now let's go and let's have this like goofy party. So that was, that's how I reinforced him was through personal interaction. And I actually, I, I see this a lot with a lot of low drive dogs. A lot of the times they're really just not, we consider them kind of low drive partially because we haven't really found the right motivator. And once we can kind of tap into what, actually, they do find reinforcing, we can get a lot more out of those dogs. And one of the things that I see is that in general, we as humans underestimate the value of play and petting as reinforcement options for our dogs. Because for our high drive dogs, we're like, oh my God, all they want is the thing. All they want is the thing. And I'll tell you, Nico really likes hanging on to his thing 
Mm -hmm. and having me pet him while he's hanging on to his thing. That's like almost A plus reinforcement for him. I I call it making your reinforcer nuclear. Yes. Nuclear reinforcement. Because it's whatever they like, you add you in there and it goes nuclear. Right. Yeah. And so it's thinking about how you put all of that socialness in there that is is ideal instead of being the, no, we can't pretend we're like five-year-old girls who just want a free donkey. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, here's, here's my, my soapbox is if you're going to praise your dog, be genuine about it. Because a lot of times I hear people they're they're trying so hard. They just keep repeating the same word in a very high pitched fashion. I'm like, you're not being genuine. Tell your dog how amazing they are. Right. Right. Crystal's talking about sometimes finding the right activity for your dog. And I'll use this as an example a hundred times over the little 13 year old that's currently laying at my feet. I wanted her to be a female level disaster dog so bad. I got her certified and a year later, she like totally checked out. And a little bit after that, it took me two months to spin her up to be a drug dog for private contracting. So I, you know, I wasn't selling her anything. So we did private contracting and that was her dream job. Because she got to do odor work and she didn't have to be more than six feet away from me. Because in her world, just being next to me is her primary reinforcement. That is all she needs to be reinforced is to be with me. So sometimes dogs like just being couch potatoes. And you know what? It's okay. And I, I also found like sometimes people think their dog is low drive and it could be that their dog is low confidence. Yes. So I would, if you think your dog is low drive, first check how confident they are in not only in the environment, but in their skills. So you can have a dog that's overthinking things because they're so afraid of being wrong. Yes. That yes. they come across as low drive. And as soon as you start to build some confidence in their own ability and you and you increase the motivation, your dog becomes something different. Yes. And now no longer does your dog seem low drive, but now you're like, whoa, this dog's actually got a motor. Right. Okay. Next question is, we travel a lot with our dogs. Yes, we do. Uh-huh. Discussing uh-huh. ways to make traveling easier and don't be afraid to talk about your must-have products and other tips and tricks. They've got to be able to wait before they come out of the crate. That is number one safety. Dogs do not come out of a crate unless they're released. Yes. Otherwise, you're going to have a mess. That is like, if I were to pick out one thing, it's exiting the crate. Yes. And when you exit the crate, and I have even gotten to the point where I now overtrain this to the point where the dogs, I can leave, especially at training when it's safe, because sometimes... Someday it will happen to me someplace else. I will get flustered. I will walk away from the crate and leave the crate door open. Uh And it's my expectation the dog waits in the crate until I come to release it. Yes. And that's a good one. I spend lots of, I am not fortunate like Stacy. I do not have a mobile house. It's just a man. (laughs) (laughs) I know. But so I say, oh, oh, you mean the camper? Yeah, the the camper or your van. Well, you and Crystal both have campers and vans that you van camp and stuff. I have a minivan. So when I travel, I spend lots of time in hotel rooms. 
and collapsible crates, dogs that will actually survive Mm -hmm. and have been trained sufficiently to crate in a collapsible crate because they're easier to take in and out of a room. Sometimes you don't get to pick that. The dogs pick that for you. And I'm probably going to get hate mail over this, but a flexi leash. I use a flexi all the time for potty. Yes, potty for going to... My flexi leash is a potty leash. Yep, that's a potty flexi leash. Flexi leash is potty leashes. Potty leash. Um, spring water. Spring water, guys. Or bring from home. Yes. You're going to find out if you travel and you give your dog strange water, that can cause digestive upset in a lot of dogs. Yes. So either, either buy bottled on route. On the road. Or bring your own from home. That yep. makes a big difference. That does make a big difference. And that's an easy thing to do just to help to keep your dog, you know, feeling good. The sunshades, I think everybody has those that go over the top of your car. Yep. Yep. Stacy, you have a noggle. I have a noggle. Uh, you can get it from Noggle Nation. Uh, actually, my noggle broke. I have to get a new noggle. Actually, no, that just a cl- it connects to your front vent. And it's like a hose that then you can trace back to the back of the vehicle. So if you have a vehicle like mine where the most powerful vents are in the front, you can that way you can get some air more to the back. And that just reminded me, I have to get a new noggle, noggle connector. Ah. A noggle attachment. Another thing that I will recommend highly for anybody who stays in hotel rooms or Airbnbs is bring sheets. Sheets. Fitted sheets. Fitted sheets are amazing. Fitted that's, sheets. That's my... I bring because I do hotel rooms, I don't do a lot of Airbnbs, but I have two king-size flat sheets yep. that re- live in my car. So Perfect when I yep, I go check in because all of the hotels have started moving to these freaking white... Airbnbs too. Yeah, the white comforters white and comforters. stuff. And oh, I'm like, you've got to be kidding. I know. And so I throw king-size sheet over the top of it so that I don't get dog... Lots of dog hair. There's still dog hair. Lots of dog hair or dog prints all over there and stain their white duvets and everything. So, and Stacy, yeah. you take a lot of fitted sheets to put over furniture. Furniture, because that that's actually, I found that it's perfect for putting on a sofa because it's just like, I just bring a bunch of fitted sheets and it's so easy because they stay in place. Because everybody's like, how do you get these Airbnbs? Like, how do people let you in with four dogs or whatever? And I'm like, look, at, you know, I've got this amazing feedback because they take really good care of the place. And so they look back, you know, and they see all this great feedback and I have no problem. And the, the key to that is fitted sheets. Yes. All right. Somebody needs handler training help. Don't we all? Strategy for remembering where you found hides. I try to pause and take a look around before the dog goes off to search again. But in the heat of the moment, I completely forget this. Yeah, that's the strategy. And I would just say practice it because the reason why you're forgetting it is handler arousal. Right. And so lowering your handler arousal through breathing and before and everything you before you get to the search area will help you. Well, and one of the things I was thinking about because the way that our disaster dog certifications are done, which you guys can't do, is not disaster, but well, any of this stuff that I do, we put down markers or allowed to put down markers so that we can remember. But one of the things that you could do, especially if you have a big area or something, is take a few minutes at the start line 
and divide your room into section A, B, C, and D, or however, this is how firefighters do stuff. And you can actually go ahead and be like, okay, that hide was in section A in then put it on the clock. So just come up with whatever method. And Crystal's like, I take pictures of my hides. Well, yeah, I will do that too. If I'm doing cadaver stuff, the nose where people don't have time yeah. for guys. Yeah, we don't, we don't have time. But, but what you can do if you're doing NACSW is that you will see the search areas ahead of time on virtual, on the walkthrough. That's a virtual walkthrough. And what I try to do is when I watch the virtual walkthrough is kind of put myself in it kind of visualizing what it looks like when I'm in the walk, in the search area before I even search. And having that orientation ahead of time to just kind of immerse myself does help. And just even the other thing you can kind of think of is actually stating it out loud. If you're in an area where, you know, if it's if you're doing NACSW, it's not a big deal. If you're in AKC, because of the proximity of the search areas, they may not like that. But I would generally like you can say you can actually say out loud where the hide was and that can help to reinforce that in your brain. Yeah. Okay. How much does dog pheromones have in causing false alerts? Mm -hmm. Often once you see a false alert, other dogs at a distractor, other dogs will also false alert there as well. Any tips or trips to try and trainer proof against it. Well, the first one I'll say is you train with Crystal who will literally walk through your training area and laugh at things and cry at things and all sorts of stuff to give like different feelings in those areas. And the other thing is too, my suggestion might be move the hot boxes or move something so that you might have false alert smell some or alert smell someplace, but the odor is in a different place. I would just be careful because we're going to have a lot of residual transfer with essential oil. You guys that, will, but we don't have that as much, but you guys do. Yeah, you don't you don't have that as much, but we do. So I think that there is. I think Joe Rosie talked about this. I can't remember if it's we people we had gotten as a industry, very stuck on the fact that, oh my God, the dog had a dopamine dump where the hide is. And that's what all of the rest of the dogs are alerting to. And if you actually look at the research, I believe we start thinking the dopamine dump actually starts happening earlier in the search chain. Yeah. Yeah. So we need to start thinking about is the dog alerting to the fact that the other dogs really put their nose in that location and now they're alerting to dog saliva or... I think we, yeah, I think we don't know. I think there is a pheromone thing there. Right. I find, however, like if I'm watching, like if I'm timing or something, I'm watching dog after dog after dog. You see this a lot where you have a dog false alert and then you have a bunch of dogs come after that and false alert in the same spot. But the dogs that false alert on the same spot tend to be dogs who may not necessarily be quite as strong. Like I see the dogs come in and I feel like like maybe with those dogs, like they don't really have a real grasp of like they're just not as confident coming in, confident of knowing source, confident in everything that they do. And then what happens then you get a dog come in that's confident and they've got really great skills and they have that discrimination capability. And they're like, no, that's not it. 
and then they move on and they alert somewhere and they alert correctly. That seems to start a new chain of events where now all the dogs after that dog tend to be successful. So for me, like when I have people that ask me about, well, what about people always call it dog drool? It's not dog drool, but it's if you can get your dog truly understanding source and understanding the discrimination. Yes, that's one of the D's crystal. <laughs> She's going to hate me. That if you can really get your dog really understanding the target odor and only target odor is going to, is going to get their reinforcement for that, right? That solves that because then they don't have the question mark of, well, the, the other dog was here. Right. And for me, it has to do with how well does a dog actually understand target odor? I think with containers, part of the issue is that we think we've taught the dog to alert on the birch container. But in some cases, if you don't train with distractions enough, for instance, the dog's going to alert on what they think is just the non-empty box. So what you think you're training may not be what you're training is kind of my point. And really making sure they understand that is a big... Crystal had a really, really good idea that if you're setting that up and you have that particular problem, have somebody else bring a dog in and have somebody play or reinforce their dog for maybe just doing awesome sits right next to a particular thing. Yeah. And just get a whole bunch of really happy, happy juju going on in that location and see what happens. And maybe that's one way to train. Okay. So I'm looking at the number of questions we have left versus the time that we have left. And so we're going to go to a speed round. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Okay. All right. So do you have a favorite wind direction indicator and how often do you use it? I like the Cirrus wind indicator and no, I don't use it very often. (laughs) I'm going to be honest with you, I use an app. Yeah. My favorite wind direction indicator happens to be the little tiny hairs on the side of my neck. (laughs) And I close my eyes. Well, my phone gives me the predominant wind direction, right? And then I can get whatever other information I need from the little tiny hairs on my neck. Now I understand that that's at five foot high and my dog's nose is at three, but it gives me... Or flagging tape. Yeah, flagging tape for tracking, hanging on. Yeah, that's fine. Okay. When you are judging, what information do you get from the demo dog? How often do you change your hide placement or adjust your yes zone based on the behavior of the dog in white? The dog in white determines my yes zone. Typically, yes. The demo dog, or which is AKC, dog and white is NACSW. Uh, for us, the they're basically just saying, "Is the odor available?" and right. some indication of how the odor odor is behaving is pre- presenting. Yeah, if the dog, if there's no, if the the odor is not available at that point, you may want to make some adjustments, adjustments, or you can adjust the search area if it looks like it's exceedingly more difficult than you anticipated. Yes, and. I have seen, we have adjusted hides for testing based on what the dog in white does. And typically it has everything to do with odor availability and not necessarily, which leads to hide placement. So there. Okay. Have you seen odor transfer from one hot item to a cold one via a dog's feet when a dog paws or digs the hot item and then walks onto an adjacent cold one? Yes. Containers. All right. Essential oil is like toxic waste. Yep. Okay. <laughs> Good hide placement. Okay. 
Pros and cons of having a trailing dog versus cadaver dog, besides the obvious differences, hope that makes sense. The biggest pro is that you have you get twice as many searches. The biggest con is the fact that you have two disciplines which are highly time intensive that you have to train for. And I also think that yes, with trailing, you actually have to have people hiding at the end of your tracks. Some of the time, you don't have to have it all of the time. Contrary to what people might think, you can put articles at the end of the track and just be done because that's what happens in the real world. So because the dog should enjoy tracking because it enjoys tracking or trailing, the subject at the end of the track is icing on the cake. So that's kind I will just take that one. Advice on working intact dogs. My females, I have absolutely no, there's no difference. They stay in better condition when they're intact. Yeah. Metabolism goes down after the spay, but. Right. With the females, I occasionally I've seen them when they're young, maybe get a little bit of in heat brain, but typically we've worked through that by time they've turned two or three. The boys, females in heat are, should be considered a distraction. And you can still work because I don't get that choice for where I show up to work. I might have to work through females in heat. Puppies, particular breeder puppy selection for a sport dog. I would say get a dog you can live with. Yes. First, make sure, and I understand if you want to be highly competitive in whatever sport you're doing, you are going to increase your chances of being competitive in that sport if you choose a traditional breed mm-hmm. to be in that sport. One. But I would pick the breed you want and you're, especially if it's a sport. Yes. But pick the dog first. But confidence is going to be your biggest. Yeah. Yep. Easy to reinforce will help. And make sure the breeder that you're working or that you choose does all the important health testing. And I'm not talking about colors. I'm talking about health testing. Yes. Don't buy a dog based on color. Nope. Color is typically about number three on my list. And then make sure that your breeder, I, as a breeder, I think I probably over-communicate with the people who are buying my puppies but they are also buying little pieces of very, very hard work that I have poured a lot of my mind and soul into. And so make sure that your puppy, your breeder is also doing all of the early neurological and confidence building with your puppies that you would expect them to. Don't be afraid to get references and interview breeders. Last one is thoughts on e-collars. Do you use them and specifically for a recall? I use e-collars mainly at this point to reinforce to my dogs that chasing my cows and donkeys are not an acceptable thing. I am working with people who do use e-collars because it is a tool that I don't know very much about or how to use well. So I need to understand how to use it with as much precision as I use other tools that I have in my toolbox, like a clicker. I have not used them. Yeah. 
And up until recently, I hadn't used them either. And working with some of the bird dog people and watching some really, really high caliber bird dog people work with e-collars, the amount of precision that they can use them with, that it is still incredibly fair to the dog is incredibly important for their work. And let's be honest, when they're talking about having a dog two to 500 yards away from them out retrieving a bird and a deer pops up or something like that, yeah, you still need a safety net on your dog because you know what? They are dogs. And so using them for recalls, I guess my my whole thing is if you are going to use any tool, including a clicker, make sure you find somebody who is going to appropriately train your dog and has the ethics that you appreciate and is fair to you and the dog and teaching you how to use it. So that would be my only suggestion on e-collars and tools. And I know a lot of dogs that in order, working dogs are a whole different lot when it comes to using tools. And so we just have to be careful on how we look at them and how they're used because There's a lot of abuse that goes around, but there's also a lot of people who know how to use them incredibly well and that are fair to everyone involved. So, and then. I think that was it. That's it. Now I have, they, we once did it. Somebody had suggested we do a story time episode. Oh, we should do one of those. We should do another story time episode. So that's that. And so, Stacy, can you think of anything right off the top of your head for a really quick story that you might want to share? A really quick story or a special memory about the people that I've met through my dog. So I'm going to get kind of sappy. I met Robin and Crystal and the two of you, and I'm talking to Crystal too, even though she's not like voicing, she's still typing, are such an important, incredible part of my life that I would not have either one of you in my life if it wasn't for the dogs and for searching. And I am very thankful for that. So that's my special memory. Okay, yeah. You know what? I think that that could probably be said for all three of us. Yeah. Thank you everybody for listening in. And we want all of you to have a very wonderful holiday season. And we will chat with you next time. For now, go train. Canine Detection Collaborative! We appreciate the time you spend with us. If you liked this episode, not only should you follow us so you don't miss the next one, but please also rate and review us in your favorite podcast app. For info on collaborating with us, go to caninedetectioncollaborative.com. That's K-9-detectioncollaborative.com, where you can find our socials and pick up our latest monthly freebie. Join us again to talk training in the next episode.